You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and this week I am talking to Gurwinder Bogal, who is a freelance writer. Gurwinder's work has uh, featured in a number of publications, including ARIO, and I will be putting a few links to uh, recent articles that I particularly enjoyed into the show notes. I would also highly recommend that uh, you all follow Gurwinder's Twitter account. He is a master of nomic utterances um, of the kind for which Twitter is um, its the best possible. I mean, your account, Gur, is the best possible use of Twitter. I would say that it, he's very similar to, uh, it's very similar to I, um, uh, Aisha Canby's um, account and way of talking on Twitter in a way. But apart from your amazingly perceptive and beautiful and sometimes quite mind-blowing little philosophical thoughts that you uh, put out there on Twitter, you do have a an overarching theme that I I have spotted in your in your work, which is the capacity of the human mind, the capacity of the human mind to deceive itself. Um, our, our human capacity for self-deception, which is universal, bipartisan, multi-partisan, that's found in the mainstream, in the fringe, in basically everyone. And a lot of what you do is to, to point out the many and varied capacities for self-deception. Uh, you say in a recent article, um, Reality is software that doesn't run well on our mental hardware unless the display resolution is minimized, um, with your usual fantastic kind of line in metaphor. So welcome, Gurinder. Thank you, Ayana. Pleasure to be here. So I'd like to begin by talking about um, a couple of recent articles that you've written that are related to the theme of free speech. Right. And as I think uh, some of the ARIO readers will know, we recently had a free speech fortnight at ARIO, and we are, in fact, now going to publish the ARIO free speech volume. So I do have a publisher for that Hmm. confirmed now, so I'm particularly interested in this topic. Um, And one of the main arguments against free speech is the harm that is caused by the proliferation of fake news. And in a recent article that you wrote for Rabbit Hole magazine, which I'll link to in the show notes, you argue that the most effective way to fight fake news is to do the very opposite of what is being done and to simply let conspiracy theories run rampant. Tell us about about that. Okay, um, so the idea probably seems absurd to most people. And I think the reason for that is that people are not used to um, bottom up 
emergent solutions. Uh, people tend to sort of overvalue top-down um, solutions rather than bottom-up ones. And it's probably one reason why um, socialism is so popular among the young and, and capitalism is not, because it, capitalism is a, is a bottom-up solution which gradually comes to a solution through uh, an emergent system. Uh, whereas you know socialism is top down and it's it's planned and you can easily see what the intention of the system is so it seems strange to think that we could solve the problem of misinformation through more misinformation but if you look at the history of humanity um humanity has always sort of solved problems essentially by adapting to them really you know environmental problems that is to say um and what I fear is that the kind of rules and regulations that we're creating now to minimize fake news and conspiracy theories, the long-term effects of these are actually going to be detrimental because what they're going to do is they're going to change the environment and sort of they're going to essentially, um, by sterilizing the internet of uh, fake news and conspiracy theories were essentially weakening our mental immune systems um, because obviously you know human beings are adaptive creatures and we adapt to hazards um, by being exposed to them this is why um, for instance you know um, if you look at um, experiments that have been conducted on rats when they're placed in a sterile environment uh, for a long period of time their immune system actually becomes very weak and they will be killed by um, sort of viruses and, and other pathogens that they would normally um, be largely invulnerable to. And I fear that the same thing will happen in the long term if we adopt a policy of completely excising all fakeness, all fake news, all, all conspiracy theories from the internet. Um, I think really one of the problems is that we cannot actually feasibly remove lies from the internet um lies you know lies vastly outnumber truths in this world there are just far too many lies there are so many lies that um it's just not possible to completely create an environment in which there is only truth you, you just can't it's just not possible so that's the first problem and the second problem is that even if you could succeed in removing all lies from the internet eventually somebody is going to come across something that's just not true. And, and, and if, when they do, they won't be ready for it because they will never have been exposed to anything false. So they will completely, you know, have blind trust in everything that they see. I mean, this is an ex extreme example, but it's just, I'm using it uh, illustratively just to sort of, you know, make people understand. Obviously in real life, the situation wouldn't be that extreme, but um, the principle is the same. Um, if you, as you know, if you look at what big tech's doing today, what they're trying to do is they're essentially trying to um, spoon feed people truth by, you know, they put these big nutritional labels on information saying, oh, this has been fact checked as false or whatever, you know. So what they're trying to do is they're trying, I mean, you know, they've got the best of intentions. They're trying to do good in the world, but they're completely misguided because what they're essentially doing is they're making people reliant on them to tell them what is true. And I think that's an extremely dangerous thing to do. Because once you make somebody reliant on someone else to tell them what they can trust, you're essentially creating um, somebody who is just ripe for brainwashing. And 
as we've already seen, you know, with the way that the lab leak hypothesis regarding COVID's origins was prematurely dismissed as a conspiracy theory, even the mainstream can get it wrong. Um, you know, even the big tech can get it wrong. Even the fact checkers can get it wrong. So I think that the system that is currently being used to stem misinformation and conspiracy theories is fundamentally flawed, both because it's not possible to um, eliminate lies from the internet. And secondly, because it's not desirable to eliminate lies from the internet, because in the long term, it's going to weaken our brains and weaken our capacity to determine what's true and false for ourselves, essentially. Yeah, I um, um, I noticed this phenomenon, actually, when I went to um, when I went to university, uh, when I was an undergraduate, one of the first and most important things I learned at Cambridge was that just because something is written in a book doesn't mean that it's true. And that mm. sounds like a really sort of stupid assumption. But I, I vividly remember the experience of um, I was doing English literature and um, um, wanting to write an essay on, say, Chaucer and going into the Cambridge University Library, so it already has this imprimatur of authority on it, and going to the, the section on academic books on Chaucer and pulling down a book on Chaucer and reading that and finding the arguments extremely eloquent and persuasive and um, then basically reproducing those, um, those arguments in my own essay. Mm. And um, feeling very, very confident because I got that information from a book. You know, somebody had taken the trouble to write a whole book on this. And it was clearly someone who'd spent many years studying Chaucer and who had a PhD in this and who was a professor at, a, at, at um, Oxford or something. And um, uh, when my supervisor got the essay, he thought that I'd probably gathered these ideas from somewhere. I didn't plagiarize them. You know, I put them into my own words and kind of applied them in my own way. But I was clearly influenced by this, by this line of thinking. And he just proceeded to completely demolish um, my essay and show me how that line of thinking was really simplistic, misguided and just wrong. Mm. And it was a real eye opener for me. And it it took a few times for it to sort of sink in. And it's something that I've noticed very often in, in autodidacts or when people are autodidactic, even on one particular subject, that they have read a book, let's say, on nutrition is one that we've all, I think we've all come across those people. They've read um, The Big Fat Lie and have become a keto devotee, or they've read... Um, Michael Mosey's book, The Fast 800, or whatever it is. And because it's there in a book with lots of research and footnotes and citing of articles, etc., it must be true. And the first thing you've got to lose is that belief that the medium makes the thing true. Yeah. That the seal of approval is just a shortcut and you can just kind of outsource thinking to another person or or organization, or publisher, or social media organ, or whatever it is. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, if anyone who wants to understand um, the way people learn uh, would do well to understand heuristics, um, which is essentially, a heuristic is basically a mental shortcut that the brain takes. And I mean, if you look at our evolutionary history, uh, the reason 
we have all these biases um, today is because of heuristics. It's because the brain evolved to minimize the amount of time and energy it spends um, to make decisions, because obviously time and energy are very costly from an evolutionary perspective. And so um, the brain formulated these mental shortcuts. Um, we have a variety of them, you know, uh, one of them, for instance, is stereotyping. You know, we will uh, we will use stereotypes in order to arrive at a conclusion much faster than if we had um, not stereotyped. Um, and another one is learning by what other people have said. So when we read a book, we sort of just kind of assume it's true because it saves us so much time and energy, you know, it saves us the time and energy of having to think for ourselves. Um, if we can just, you know, uh, sort of grab an expert and just kind of um, essentially just absorb whatever they believe without having to think too hard about it. Um, so this is obviously a, a big problem. You know, it's it's one that um, is probably a core to the problem of, of kind of fake news. Um, but it's not the only problem. Um, another problem is that, I mean, there was a recent study, I don't know, if it will replicate, but it suggests that um, people will knowingly share information that that they know is false, basically. So they don't even have to believe the information in order to, to share it. They will sometimes share it um, for social media clout, uh, you know, if they think that this thing is going to get them retweets or, or likes, but they know that it's untrue, uh, but it, it sort of, you know, it signals to their tribe, then they will still retweet it. Um, so, you know, th that's the problem really with the, the misinformation issue is that it's not just a case of, um, epistemology. It's not just a case of, um, determining what's true and what's not true. It's actually also about, um, signaling and uh, status games, you know, and kind of a lot of these other evolutionary sort of byproducts of our, of our sort of, you know, history, which are now manifesting, um, in sort of unexpected ways. Um, so, yes, I mean, it, you know, it, people believing what they what they read is one issue. And that's just one. That's the issue that the big tech sort of giants are trying to resolve. And, but that's not going to solve the problem because there are so many other issues and so many other reasons why people share false information. And so also so many reasons why they believe it as well. It's, it's sometimes not just because an expert said it. Um, sometimes people will believe things because... Um, you know, it, it sort of favors their tribe. It makes their tribe look good or it, or it demonizes the enemy tribe, or it could be that it makes them, um, feel comfortable. Uh, you know, for instance, it might make them, uh, feel good about, um, their lifestyle or about, uh, the fact that they're going to die, you know, they might sort of assuage the, the fear of death. There are so many different reasons why people believe things. And, and that's why a sort of singular approach like the sort of tech giants um, are currently conducting, I don't think it, it's feasible. I don't think it will really get to the root of the problem. I think also that a lot of people just don't actually read the articles themselves at all. Yeah, there's a very interesting uh, sort of experiment that was conducted along these lines uh, in which there was a headline in, in a newspaper. I can't actually remember the newspaper, but there was a newspaper which basically published a headline which said 70% of people do not, read past the headline before they share an article. And this article actually went viral on social media. And what's actually hilarious is that the article itself was largely composed of, you know, the lorem ipsum 
Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Most of the article was actually filled with that. It started off like the first couple of paragraphs were just normal, you know, article writing. And then it just went off into just gobbledygook. And so it was essentially proving its own point by going viral. Uh, oh, that, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 it was one of the big frustrations when I was in academe, which was how do you, uh, get a, a room full of students. Why? Are you, what is the point of trying to get a room full of students to discuss a text when none of them have read it, or yeah. maybe only one or two of them have read it? Um, but therefore, you're nevertheless you're supposed to give them all equal opportunity to have their say, encourage them all to express what they think of the text. But they haven't mm. read the text, and everybody knows they haven't read it. And Twitter feels like that kind of utterly perverse classroom situation just multiplied by a million. Yeah. And I I think this is, I don't know if this is an apocryphal story, but the story is circulated, currently circulating that within uh, Keir Starmer's recent manifesto on the his vision for the Labour Party, the copy that was circulated to MPs and committee members had uh, somewhere on page 70 or something, it's a very long manifesto, incredible, stultifyingly boring, of course. It said, if you've read this far, write to this email address and we will send you a free magnum of champagne. And nobody hmm. claimed the magnum of champagne. Oh, it went completely uh, unclaimed. I, so. yeah, uh, I, I don't I know if that's, I don't know if that's a yeah. true story or not, but i it's, it's certainly believable. And of course, I don't want to, I don't even want to verify it by reading through to page 770 because life is too short. Yeah, by proving its point kind of essentially. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so another related concept um, that I haven't heard anyone else referring to um, and which you have talked about in, in uh, an article that you wrote for Quillette about Alex Jones and um, you uh, you agree, as many other people, as many of us defenders of free speech agree, that Alex um, shouldn't have been thrown off all of the social media platforms, and that that could create a Streisand effect, making him more popular than ever. But also, um, you say something rather more unusual. You talk about an oligopoly of ideas, yeah, and you say here, you say that the ideological forces responsible for Alex Jones's rise are a greater threat to free speech than the corporate forces responsible for his fall. Principal defenders of free speech would therefore be unwise to rail against the former while ignoring the latter. Um, An oligopoly of perspectives, that's what you call it. You talk about the way in which virality on on, uh, social media can cause the arena of debate to quickly become dominated by an oligopoly of perspectives. Can you explain uh, uh, explain more about uh, what you mean by an oligopoly of perspectives? Okay, so initially this may seem contradictory to the more recent article that I wrote uh, in which I said that we should allow the f- sort of free market of ideas to sort of allow people to ad- adapt to it. Um, but there's, the issue is obviously a lot more complex than just that. So one of the things that struck me was this kind of system that we have now in which we in which debate is um, completely dominated by sort of either you've got the 
the basically the left or the right now, but you've all, you've got very particular strains of the left and right. You know, you've got the woke left who essentially dominate um, all the sort of main cultural power centers in the West. And then you've got the populist right, which is obviously, as, as, the, as the name suggests, it's popular amongst the masses. Um, so now you've got these two forces, both of which are quite hostile to competing views that are essentially dominating much of the discourse that occurs on social media. Um, you know, people call it the culture war. And as a result of that, a lot of people are essentially muscled out from sharing their perspectives because of these two big powers. The, you know, these are the sort of essentially the oligopoly in the same way that you have an oligopoly of social media giants. So for instance, Twitter and Facebook, you know, uh, dominate, you know, you, you've got others obviously as well, like Instagram and stuff, but there's a very small number of tech platforms which completely dominate the landscape. So in that same way, you've also now got these ideologies which dominate the landscape and which make it very hard for other ideas to be heard. Now, I'm not in favour of regulating them uh, per se, because I'm not really in favour of regulating speech at all. But I think that it's prudent for us to understand that this oligopoly did not occur as a result of regulation. It occurred as a result of freedom. It was actually the free market of ideas that led to this oligopoly of ideas, of, of perspectives. Um, and I think this is very important for a lot of free speech um, proponents, of which I include myself, uh, to sort of bear in mind, you know, the, the free market can essentially lead to an unfree market. I mean, this occurs in economics also, when you have monopolies. Uh, monopolies can stifle competition and they can sort of essentially uh, work to the detriment of the capitalism of the capitalist system and in the same way um, when you have you know like one or two ideologies which completely dominate as say the woke sort of ideology dominates discourse uh, amongst the elites and the sort of populist right discourse is, is just dominating um, populist discourse then it really does begin to have the opposite effect of what you would expect a free market of ideas to have in that things become less free in a sense. And so what I think should should be the case, I don't, like I said, I don't believe that we should regulate people. I don't think we should stop the woke from airing their views, even though their views dominate academia, it's particularly social science academia, or dominate, you know, elite media. Um, I don't think we should just stop them from, from talking. But I think it's important to understand that we need to allow other perspectives to have their time in the sun. So people should essentially um, try to be more sort of open in, in the kinds of uh, media and that they consume and the kinds of ideologies that they entertain in their minds. Because if you sort of stick to them, what is the monopolies? If you stick to just the, the two choices of, you know, either this kind of, you know, woke left or this this based right in the culture war. Essentially, what you're doing is you're um, you're you're limiting your perspectives, and because these two ideologies have become quite hostile to other ideas, the long term effect of this is that people are going to become more closed minded rather than open minded. So that's that's a very strange contradiction. Is that a free market of ideas, if left purely to its own devices, can lead to a monopoly of of perspectives and it can lead to the stifling of free speech so a free 
free speech can lead to unfree speech, which is a very strange thing to say. But when you when you think about it this way, you know, it, it sort of makes sense. And so, yeah, that's basically what I, what I was trying to say. Well, it's a kind of network effect, isn't it? I, um, if we, if an idea is, uh, if an idea is popular, then it goes viral, and then more and more people share it, and then it comes to dominate more and more. Yes. And what we have is a is an ecosystem, is a kind of um, a speech ecosystem that is dominated by two sets of ideas that are very e- it's very easy for people to to add those into the their kind of the their their set of ideas that they already approve of or disapprove of mm. um and so those are also when we see woke ideas or ideas from the kind of red pilled right quote unquote so they both the woke and the red pilled both have this metaphor that you are the only ones who can see and determine the truth mm. and everybody else is is seeing lies. So again, it's this unawareness of the human capacity for self-deception on, on both sides. And when you see those ideas you strongly agree with or disagree with, you also feel more emotional about them and that makes you more, they're more likely to grab your attention and you're more likely, you're more likely to share them. So it's, it's, it sort of crowds out the opportunity for other ideas that don't fit that, that yes. don't fit that framework. Exactly. Yes. I mean, it's, uh, the, the, I think the problem is, is that uh, a sort of, a, a, you know, a championing of free speech needs to be accompanied with an open-mindedness because if you champion free speech, but you remain closed-minded, then the end result is going to be the same. You're going to have a closed system in which only ideas that you favour are allowed to flourish, despite whatever you say about free speech, there's not going to be free speech in practice because open-mindedness is a sort of crucial element of free speech. And this is something that a lot of people actually neglect, I think. And this is actually quite true on the right because um, one of the things that I've noticed, I mean, you know, like the, the whole free speech movement is sort of more associated with the right than it is with the left nowadays. Um, but the kinds of speech that the right will try to, um, you know, uh, preserve are usually the ideas that will benefit the right. I mean, you don't really see right-wing figures calling for free speech for Islamists, um, Mm -hmm. you know, or for Black Lives Matter um, activists, do you? You know, it's usually always um, people who are anti-immigration or who are, um, you know, some some people who have some kind of right-wing sort of view. And so, this is, I think, a bit of a problem because really, you know, free speech has to be for everybody. It's a cliche, I know, but it's true. You know, free speech is either for everyone or it's for no one because, um, you know, if, if, it's, if, if free speech is limited to just the kinds of people that you approve of, then it's not free at all. It's, it's just, it's just favoritism. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people, although this is such so obvious and it's so cliche to say this, a lot of people don't actually understand this, I think. Um, and I think it's something that people really do need to understand. And, and and it's why we do result, it's why free markets of ideas do tend towards these monopolies because people tend to just favour their own tribe and they only support their own tribe and they don't, they don't support discourse itself. They only support their message or their tribe's message. And that's what leads to these these kinds of oligopolies, which sort of muscle out other perspectives and result in a very sort of um, rigid um, sort of system in which only, you know, a couple of 
of worldviews can really flourish. Um, mm. Mm. So yeah, so this is this is one of the central problems. Um, I think it's it's a short term problem though. I don't think it's it's necessarily a long term problem um, because I think that the landscape is always changing. And um, I mean, I, I'm not sure that that the woke or the based are anything more than fads. Uh, I think that maybe in time they will probably be replaced with other worldviews. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. I think that it's, I mean, not having a kind of regulation by fiat from above is mm. the beginning of free speech, but it's not yep. the kind of end of it. Exactly. Um, you uh, First, you need the freedom. That is, that is, for me, you know, that's a necessary condition for um, a a good flourishing kind of pub, a public square of discourse. It's an absolutely necessary condition that there mustn't be censorship, but it's not a sufficient condition exactly. for us to have a good, you know, landscape. Um, for that, we need to we need to also make choices about what we're boosting and um, not boosting, what we're boosting and and um, ignoring. Uh, and what we ourselves are saying. So that, you know, the content of what is out there is also important. That's determined by huge effects of millions of people choosing to to signal certain things and, and not signal others. Um, so I think that it's, it's one of the arguments that's made, I hear being made against free speech a lot is that um, there is this naive presupposition that if you just give people free speech, the best, the better ideas will prevail. And mm. I do believe that's true in the very long term, uh, in the yeah, very long term. Yeah. But in the short term, it's not necessarily true at all. Mm. And, but we are asking of, we're asking too much of free speech to, uh, to ask it to be a solution to all of our intellectual problems. We still have to engage brains and do kind of actual thinking exactly. within that space of freedom. Yes, absolutely. Um, and this is something that people neglect. You know, people, there is this assumption that um, if only, you know, people are allowed to air their ideas, then suddenly uh, everything will be okay. But like you said, it's just the beginning. You know, that's literally just all it is. All free speech really is, is just p the permission to have a debate. That's literally all it is. And then you've got to actually do the debating. And yeah. that's the hard part for most people. Um and that's really what a lot of people need to focus a bit more on, I think, because to be honest, I mean, I think we do generally have a very free uh, sort of market of ideas. Um, when you compare it to all of human history, mm. you know, <laughs> I mean, most of human history has been, you know, you, you wouldn't really be able to say very much at all. Um, most of it was regulated pretty hard, um, if not at the state level, then at the family level. Um, there were very strict sort of, you know, uh, mores of what you could and couldn't say, but things have, have relaxed a lot since those days. And um, in the modern age, you know, with the sort of advent of, of the internet and stuff, you there's, a, there's always somebody having a debate about something. And so, you know, yes, we do have a lot of, we do have a problem with um, sort of cancel culture. And yes, we do have a problem with big tech censorship and things like that. But these problems are relatively benign when you compare them to the, the kind of tyrannies that exist elsewhere in the world and, and also exist throughout human history. So there is enough freedom at the moment for us to have uh, a debate about almost anything. Obviously, there, there are certain topics which are still 
too uh, sort of you know precarious for for anybody to venture into. But uh, generally speaking, almost anything can be talked about nowadays, and I think that's a good thing. But the, the current state of affairs shows that this is not sufficient. So uh, you know there needs to be uh, a kind of open mindedness and a willingness to embrace the ideas of the opposition. Because without that, the free speech is meaningless, really. It doesn't really mean all, all it really means then is that you're free to just just say what you want, but you don't have to listen to anybody. So it's just going to be people talking, but not listening. And, um, you know, free, free speech on its own is just talking. That's literally all, all, it, all it really allows you to do. It's not, uh, you know, listening. And listening is, is just as important as speech. Uh, and that's probably more neglected, I think, a lot more neglected. Um, so, yeah. That's something that we should also bear in mind. Absolutely. You've written, uh, so that you, you said about Twitter, to resist indoctrination, consume unpredictably. This yeah. is why Twitter used well is a better news source than traditional media. Its news is disseminated non-linearly as random snippets, rather than as a single cohesive narrative leading you straight to the author's conclusions. Yeah. You have just the most wonderful ways of looking, <laughs> looking at things. It's uh, your Twitter account is absolutely the account of a kind of philosopher poet. <laughs> um, can't say that often enough. It's really very beautiful. Um, oh, uh, one um, talking of beautiful things, a gorgeous um, essay that you wrote for Aria, which is I think one of my favorite articles we've ever published, hmm. um, called "Not How Not to De-Radicalize a Twitter Neo-Nazi." Oh yeah, <laughs> and. In that, you talk about um, there. You you talk strongly about the uh, importance of li- of listening and of listening as a kind of persuasive technique. So yep. um, you 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 narrate your experiences uh, trying to convince um, far right racist young woman um, of the kind of error of her ways and. Um, you do so by really taking her views seriously and by giving very serious, careful, thoughtful answers and not dismissing anything, um, not dismissing anything out of hand as just a view too bigoted to consider. So I absolutely loved that. Um, and you said there that you say there that. I was confident that the more I made Chelsea, which is the name of the young woman, explain her beliefs to me, the more she would realize the irrationality of her hatred and the less extreme she would become. It wasn't a fool's hope. It is actually supported by studies. Yeah, I thought that was, uh, um, I thought that was extremely, an extremely important point and a very, very unusual one. Yeah, I think. One of the things that I've learned from uh, writing is just how bad my own ideas are until I put them down on paper. Um, sometimes I will think that I've got a really, really good idea and that I, it's everything, you know, I've basically thought of every eventuality and I've covered every possible hole, you know, and uh, then I'll put it down on paper and I'll just immediately see so many flaws in it. And it, it struck me that um, the kinds of, you know, how you imagine your ideas to be in, inside your head are nowhere near as sort of strong as, as how they actually are, like when you put them on paper. Like when you see, when you actually see your own ideas on paper, you see them with a perspective that you are blind to if you just 
have them, if you just hold them in your imagination. And this has happened so many times that I've, you know, become very wary of um, any idea that I have without really explicating it um, on paper. So nowadays, you know, if I have a, if I have an opinion, I will try to actually write about it first before I actually can uh, consider it to be an opinion of mine. Otherwise it's, it's just a few thoughts. Um, the mind seems to have this tendency to uh, favor ideas that you've thought of yourself whilst being highly critical of ideas that come from outside the mind from other people essentially. And I've noticed that as a tactic, it can actually work quite well um, when you, when you try to use this against people, because a lot of the time people will be very, very certain of a position that they hold until you actually ask them to explain it. And then they will try to do it. They will assume that they can do it. And so they will immediately take the bait. But then while they're doing it, you can sometimes spot a few flaws in their argument or a few contradictions. And if you point these out to them, sometimes, in fact, quite often, they they don't, they don't really have any answers. And sometimes they will cover that by accusing you of something, you know, of having bad motivations, of being a bad faith actor or whatever, you know, or of being a walrus, as it were. There's a certain term on, on social media where they, if you keep asking prodding questions, they call you a walrus. Um, but um, you can see that, that it's causing them discomfort and it's actually making them less sure of their own beliefs. So I think that this is actually a very good way to challenge people's beliefs, not by telling them that they're wrong. I don't think that that approach works really well at all if you tell people that they're wrong because nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to be lectured by a stranger on the internet, um, you know, telling them that, that, that they're wrong, that they're, that the opinions that they've held in their head for probably years are misguided and that they've been living their, their life uh, wrong. You know, nobody wants to hear that and people's egos will often eclipse their judgment. And so the best way to, really um, make people see the the follies of their own um, beliefs is to actually make them see it for themselves rather than be told it by the other people. So you can make people see it for themselves by rather getting them, rather than telling them that they're wrong, you can actually get them to explain to you why they're right. And in so doing, they will see that they're wrong. Uh, mm. Yeah, I think that, I mean, one other part of it is that, um, getting kind of angry with a person for believing something is very pointless because belief uh, beliefs are not voluntary. I mean, this is an argument that I've had at length with um, Peter Bogosian. Yeah. And um, I'll link to that in case anybody's interested in reading the public lecture exchange I had with him about it. Um, because he does think that you can, you can choose to believe something. But I really don't think that you can. And therefore, if, for example, the young woman you're talking to who believes that, who believes that migrants are immigrants, cause unemployment and crime, or believes that, and also believes that most black men are uh, criminals or potential criminals, potential violent criminals, you can just tell her she's a racist. But that is not going to, that accusation is not in itself going to change her mind. Exactly. Um, and you, you say in your piece, one reason the new identitarian movement is growing so fast is that no one will bother addressing its arguments. Mainstream commentators shrug it off as racist, 
seemingly unaware that its anger is made of accusations of racist racism. Identitarians regard PC culture, in quotes, as a system employed by the globalists, i.e. Jews, to suppress the truth about the evils of multiracialism. So it seems just like a tactic, accusing people of racism seems just like a tactic, a silencing tactic to them. Even, yeah. even though it's true. I mean, by definition, this is a, a this is a, actually a racist argument. But nevertheless, the way to change minds is through persuasion, undermining the belief through persuasion or through this kind of tactic of gentle Socratic kind of probing questioning and listening. If you believe a thing, you, you believe it, you know, um, it's, it's, it's not voluntary. Of course, your belief can change, but you can't decide not to believe it. Uh, for example, you know, I, I'm looking out of the window and it's sunny outside. I can't choose to believe it's raining. I just mm. simply can't. Um, yeah, I would agree with you. I, I don't think people can consciously choose uh, what to believe. Um, I mean, you know, you can choose to sort of be optimistic. You can choose to be pessimistic, I suppose, uh, to an extent. But but you can't actually choose your beliefs. And you particularly can't choose what you think is true just based on arbitrary decision making alone you know there's obviously got to be some kind of spur there's got to be something to hold on to um in order to believe in something you know you can't you can't just arbitrarily believe something and so um yeah i, I would agree with you there um but I, I think one of the things that sort of is a um one of the things that people can do is that they can sort of use information from the outside world to uh, fortify what they already believe. Uh, I mean, this is something that most people already know. It's, it's known as confirmation bias. And um, a lot of people will sort of essentially create these huge snowball ideologies based on little things that they see in the world, which they choose to incorporate into their belief systems. And, and going back to the article that, I, that you were talking about, um, you know, people will... Like people on the, the the far right will essentially use accusations of racism to bolster their belief system because what they will essentially tell themselves is the fact that these people, i.e., the mainstream, do not wish the fact that they they won't engage with our ideas is proof that they can't engage with our ideas. So if they are ever dismissed as racist, then what they take from that is these people are only calling us racist because they don't actually have any answer to our arguments. They can't, um, they can't provide any answers other than just to dismiss us and call us names. And so by calling these people racist and, and by not addressing their arguments, what, they're, what you're doing is you're providing them fuel for confirmation bias uh, in which they will see that and they'll think, ah, oh, right, okay, the only reason that they're saying that is because they can't address our ideas. Mm-hmm. And that pushes their their sort of beliefs um, even further t- towards the right. I mean, you can you can even see it in action with um, with Parler, the, the case of Parler. Uh, as you know, in, in January... You isn't, know, the, it, isn't it pronounced Parley? Uh, wasn't it pronounced Parley? I don't know. You might be right oh. there. <laughs> I, 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 okay, we'll, 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 we'll go with what you say. So Parley. Um, so basically, this, this is the social media platform uh, in January, uh, which was mm. sort of, it was completely cut off um, by Amazon Web Server. 
Um, this was in, in the wake of the uh, capital riots. And the idea behind this was that uh, Amazon didn't want to give a platform to conspiracy theorists, um, violent, you know, violent people who basically stormed the capital or whatever. Um, but the, the actual net result of this was that all the people that had been on Parley, they moved to other platforms. That was literally all that happened. There was a massive influx of people onto uh, alternative platforms. Um, I think like Gab and, and all these other other sort of platforms. And um, some of them even went onto mainstream platforms, you know, like Twitter. And it didn't, it did absolutely nothing but just stem resentment amongst those people that had been deplatformed de um, because they just thought, okay, these guys can't actually beat us in an argument. So they're just going to silence us instead. This is the, this is the first thought that goes through the mind of anyone who's been censored, really. I mean, you know, it's indignation. It's just like these people, they can't, you know, they're just basically, they're afraid of us. Um, and so I think this is, you know, uh, this is what will always happen is that if you try to sort of silence ideas by either by shutting them down um, sort of physically or by, um, you know, dismissing them as racist or calling them names or, you know, trying to ostracize them from society, the net impact of that is going to be, the net effect of it is going to be that um, people will just resent you. And that's literally all that's going to happen. They're not going to say, oh, okay, I've been deplatformed. That must mean my ideas are wrong. Um, okay, I'll stop believing what I believe. You know, it just doesn't work like that, you know. And so it's, it's never worked like that. And so there's no reason to suppose that it's going to work in future. And, um, you know, this really sort of raises another question, which is that if we have to engage with these ideas, how do we engage with them? Um, and this is a, this opens up a whole new can of worms because if you do try to debate people, it can work. Sometimes it can work very, very well. I mean, um, there's that, uh, Daryl, um, the, the Daryl Davis. Mm. Yes. Yes. Brilliant brilliant story of a guy who um, managed to, he was a black guy and he befriended um, Ku Klux Klan members by essentially just being human, by just talking to them and by having normal conversations, just everyday conversations with them. And, and through that, you know, making them realize that he's a human being like them. Um, I think that's the ideal situation. You know, that's the perfect situation. I think that will work in some cases, but I don't think everybody can do that. I don't think that's, system that can be used in every situation because you have to actually get people to engage in order to do that and that's a very difficult thing um and so you know the, the question is how do we engage with people if we cannot if we can't defeat bad ideas by silencing them how do we engage with them how do we make people see the truth do we point out their biases and you know the heuristics that their brains are using I mean, that might work in some cases also, but it's not going to work for probably most lay people who, who probably are not interested in uh, biases or, um, you know, heuristics or anything like that. So the, the kind of uh, the, the question really, the more interesting question, I think, is going to be how do we solve this, this issue? And I mean, I don't have the answer to, you know, I don't have a universal answer. I think that really we... Have, this, this is kind of dovetailing with, with the, the, the point that I made at the beginning, which is that I believe that it's something that is, we can't expect a solution in the short term. 
um, to the kinds of problems that we've got, you know, the, the problems of conspiracy theories and misinformation. I don't think it's realistic to expect any short term solution. I think all solutions will be long term um, because what is required is to actually adapt to the situation in which we're in. Uh, I mean, if you think about really all the problems that we're having at the moment with misinformation, with conspiracy theories, um, with uh, hyperpartisanship, all of these issues stem from a single fact, which is that we've created for ourselves a world we didn't evolve for. Um, all of the, pro- you know, if you look at human history, 90% of all of human history was spent in the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. This is, if you look at 200,000 years of, of human existence, around 180,000 years of that was hunter-gathering. And um, so our bodies and our minds are evolved for the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. We're evolved for small tribal societies in which, you know, we care about only the people that are in our immediate vicinity and um, in which we are constantly on the move in the physical world. We don't just spend our lives sitting down behind computers. Um, You know, if you look at all the ailments that we're suffering from today, they're, they're pretty much all a result of us living in a world we're just not evolved for. Um, and conspiracy theories are a central part of that because, you know, uh, there are many sort of ideas about why we have conspiracy theories. And um, some have suggested that it's, it's a sort of byproduct of um, a kind of tribal mentality, which enabled tribal uh, groups to, uh, to basically forms um, to basically form armies and to demonize their enemies as de- uh, dehuman, uh, sort of dehumanize our enemies, and basically to, in that respect, be able to kill people off without any mercy, without any um, sort of you know um, compulsion, compunction, compunction. And so, as a result of these kinds of belief systems that we had in the tribal you know uh, existence that we had, uh, we are now suffering from the sort of after effects of that they these kind of conspiracy theories and these kinds of um almost religious beliefs that we have about the superiority of our tribe and the inferiority of the outgroup uh, these benefited people probably in the in the past because they allowed us to essentially um just uh, form sort of you know solidarity with our tr- fellow tribes people and then just go out and murder the the opponents uh, because we'd believe that they're completely evil and irredeemable, and that would al- allow us to s- put a cap on our empathy. Uh, because one of the sad facts is that if you were, if you had too much empathy in the old days, you probably wouldn't live very long. Um, you know, most of evolutionary history is, is a very, very brutal. I mean, you, you can see it in the animal kingdom today. You know, the way that a stork, for instance, will pick its weakest um, chicks out of the nest and just drop them out of the nest because it just doesn't have the resources to um, to take care of all of its chicks. Uh, so, you know, ne- as we all know, nature is bu- brutal and and we needed a way to sort of curb our empathy and, and conspiracy theories are one way of doing that. Um, I mean, this is a theory, you know, but it, it makes sense. And um, then there are other theories, which are that, that conspiracy theories are a spandrel, which a spandrel is basically an evolutionary byproduct, which has no function in and of itself but which is just a, a byproduct of other processes which do have evolutionary um, sort of purposes. So it could be a purpose of, of religious belief, for instance, or something like that. But um, yeah, I mean, all of the problems that we, we're facing today are a result of these kinds of evolutionary 
adaptations or spandrels that we're still suffering from. And we're not going to be able to overcome these until we've adapted to the the current situation in which we're living in. And that's going to take perhaps thousands of years. That's the problem, you know, unless we can somehow speed up our own evolution, which is possible. Um, But if we just leave it to to just natural sort of uh, trial and error, it's probably going to take us thousands of years before we overcome these hurdles that we're currently living through. Um, And so it's naive, I think, to assume that we're going to have any kind of solution to this in our lifetimes or even in the lifetimes of of immediate posterity. I think uh, this is a long-term thing. And this is why I I advocate for there to be a kind of um, mithridatism um, of misinformation in which we just allow misinformation to just run its course. Uh, With that said, obviously, there are caveats to that. I don't believe we should allow anything that people post to just be allowed to just flourish online because this opens up a a completely different can of worms. Um, If we just completely leave things to themselves, then what we're going to have is we're going to have the internet fill up with multi-level marketing, uh, with probably pornography, including child pornography, uh, with doxing, there's going to be people's addresses put online. So obviously I'm not in favour of just people being allowed to post anything that they want uh, because that's going to be a disaster. I mean, there might, there might even be a few nuclear codes thrown around online as well. You know, so it's going to be a disaster if that happens. So obviously I'm in favour of some kind of regulation. I believe um, I believe in freedom of opinion. I think it's, it's more accurate to say freedom of opinion rather than freedom yes. of speech. Yes, yes, I agree. Yeah. Because I, I believe any opinion should be allowed, no matter how repulsive, uh, you know, it should be allowed, as long as it's just an opinion. But I don't believe information itself should be free. I don't believe you should be free to post any information you want. Because as I said, this is going to allow people to post nuclear secrets, nuclear codes. It's going to allow people to post child pornography. It's going to allow people to post uh, doxing. So, yeah, freedom of opinion is is definitely what we need, but not not freedom of of information. Um, and I think that this is something that we, we need to get used to really, because we're going to be in it for the long haul. Um, all the, 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 the sort of processes that Facebook and Twitter are trying to undertake through their, you know, their, their boards are not going to work because they're short-term solutions to short-term problems. And, um, what we need is we need a long-term solution to a long-term problem. Uh, so, you know, if you stifle, if you try to tell people what's true and what's not, you're going to interfere in the evolution of people. You're actually going to interfere in people's adaptation to the current situation that we're in. As I said, the main problem with us, with our life at the moment, the, mo- the main problem with, with life in the digital age is that we have configured, we've, we've created a world that we're not configured for. And so if you try to do what Facebook and Twitter are doing and you, uh, try to regulate what people can and can't see in terms of opinions and ideas, then you're interfering in our adaptive processes. You're interfering in our evolution. And and as a result of that, we're not going to evolve and we're not going to adapt to the current digital environment that we're in. We're going to remain stuck in the hunter-gatherer lifestyle because there are no sort of essentially um, selection pressures on our ideas. There are no, you know, if we're told that if we have to rely on other people to tell us what's true, then our own brains are just going to atrophy. 
because we're not going to we're not going to be able, we're not going to need to think for ourselves. We're not going to have to discern lies from truth, which is essential to life in the digital realm. And so, you know, the end result of that is we're just not going to evolve. And I think this is something that a lot of people are not really thinking about. A lot of people are thinking about the short term solutions. That they're thinking about uh, what you know. How do we stop um, the, the spread of um, you know neo Nazism or Islamism? They're not thinking about the long term. Like, how do we stop conspiracy theories and violent ideologies altogether? That's what people should be focusing on, not on the immediate localized problems of neo Nazism or Islamism or you know any of these of wokeism even you know any of these ideologies which a lot of people find um you know sort of repulsive uh yes we we need to solve these issues but they're short-term problems there's a bigger problem which is how do we actually solve conspiracy theories how do we solve the problem of conspiracy theories themselves and as far as i'm concerned there's only really one solution to that and that is to evolve uh because there is no system you can't force people through regulation to stop believing something. As you said yourself, you cannot choose to believe something. So if somebody tries to make a population believe something through f- regulations and through laws, it, it's a fool's errand. It's just not going to work. It's, it's, um, you know, it's like trying to make somebody love somebody. You can't do that. You can't force somebody to love somebody because love doesn't work like that. And the same is true of belief. You know, it, it's something that uh, has to come from within. And so it's an evolutionary process that we need to try to sort of steer in the right course rather than try to impose through some kind of top-down solution. Yeah, you've you've said also um, in a recent article that the mainstream is an echo chamber as hazardous as anything on the fringes. Yes. Um, Say more about that. Okay, so um, this is with respect mainly to the lab leak hypothesis, um, although it's not the only instance of this happening. It's just the most uh, most immediate and most relevant example. So, um, as you know, um, sort of last year, you know, um, early last year, as the pandemic was sort of coming into full swing, um, we were told by the big sort of, you know, um, media outlets like the New York Times and also by um, the health organizations like the NIH, uh, the National National Institutes of Health in the US, and the World Health Organization, COVID, that COVID had basically emerged from uh, the Wuhan wet markets and probably had come from bats. And uh, this was basically the, the sort of, you know, the narrative. This was the consensus very early on. And uh, there were a few people who sort of doubted this consensus and they believed that instead it was likely that um, COVID may have leaked from a lab in Wuhan. And immediately this was kind of rubbished. And the reason it was rubbish was largely due to essentially, well, it all began with one man, Peter Daszak, who in a Lancet letter in, in February 2020 um, uh, and basically said um, that uh, it was a conspiracy theory that the genomic analysis of COVID proved that it had evolved naturally. But obviously what he left out was the fact that a genomic analysis cannot prove that uh, a virus had come, uh, that a, a virus had emerged naturally. A genomic analysis can, it can tell you sort of, it can give you a vague idea of, of the provenance of a virus, but it cannot actually um, tell you whether, for instance, a virus was created by serial pathogen, which is a form of accelerated evolution that occurs in a lab where um, scientists will basically make 
a virus evolve according to predetermined pathways. Um, so it becomes indistinguishable from a virus that evolved in the wild it, because it's still the same mechanism of evolution. And so nobody really caught on to this for a long time, apart from a, a few select people who were dismissed as conspiracy theorists. And then later on, I mean, a year later, it emerged that this whole idea that um, COVID had come from a lab might not actually be true after all. Sorry, that COVID had come from a lab might actually be true after all. And um, as a result of that, there was, you know, this kind of whole sort of uh, distrust. There's, there's a certain distrust in the mainstream uh, to get it get to get it right because a lot of people were like, okay, we were not only were people told that it was a conspiracy theory that the that COVID had come from a lab, but people also had their um, their lives ruined essentially. I mean, some people were they you know they were basically had their um, social media accounts um, shut down. They were ostracized by their peers. You know, they were essentially called far right and stuff because a lot of this, you know, a lot of the COVID sort of lab leak hypothesis was sort of associated with with the Trump movement because Trump was the most um, visible proponent of the theory, even though he was the probably the least um, sort of educated proponent, proponent of the theory. He was just basically going by his gut feeling. He had no real evidence, um, but he was the most visible proponent of the theory. And so it became associated with him. And um, the reason why I believe that the mainstream is capable of conspiracy theories is because what we saw in this whole situation was we saw that the lab, that the idea that the lab leak hypothesis was a conspiracy theory was itself a conspiracy theory. It had all the features of a conspiracy theory. It demonized a group of people. It demonized a group of people. It had a scapegoat. The scapegoat was the Trumpians, um, the, 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 the conspiracy theorists, the, the QAnon types, you know, the people on the right who are always the boogeymen in the, in the sort of elite media. Um, you know, the elite media leans, leans to the left, the populist media leans to the right, but, uh, it's the, the the elite media basically demonized uh, the Trumpists very early on as these kinds of conspiracy theorists who were basically pushing this theory. So it had a, it had a scapegoat. It was also based on um, circular logic, you know, which was that um, this Peter Dazak had basically um, created this thing called the Woozle effect, where what he had done is he had assumed he had basically said that he had evidence that the that COVID had come that it had emerged naturally, and that's that claim was cited over and over again by mainstream media, um, by people in all spheres of power, pretty much. And as a result of that, it it sort of echoed and echoed and echoed until it had the sort of sound of authority, and people actually didn't bother checking the the sort of the chain of citations and. If they had checked, if they had checked the chain of citations, they would have seen that right at the beginning of that, at, right at the root of that chain, they would not have found anything at all. It would have been an empty claim. But people didn't do that. People saw that there was there was a claim that was cited in all these um, sort of you know respectable publications, and they thought, oh, okay, if it's been cited by this publication, it must be true. And so it was essentially like a form of, of circular logic. It was true because it was true. Essentially, it was true because it was it was in a reputable publication and, and, and that was obviously that turned out to not be true. So it had that feature of, of a conspiracy theory. And then also it, it, it was basically a, um, an ev- evidenceless claim as well. It, it had no actual evidence behind it. There was nothing 
the only evidence really that that COVID had come from a, um, a natural environment was the precedent. This was the only real evidence for it, but this is not even evidence at all because there is a precedent of viruses emerging naturally, uh, zoonotically, but there's also a precedent of viruses emerging from labs. So this is not really an argument either. So there's no real reason to believe this other than that we were told it was true. And that has, to me, the, the hallmarks of a conspiracy theory. So what we saw was a lot of people who are in the, the mainstream media who are obsessed with identity politics assumed that the lab leak hypothesis was racist. It was a racist conspiracy theory being pushed by right-wing Trumpists. But it turned out that this claim itself was the conspiracy theory um, because there was actual evidence that COVID had come from a lab. You know, there's, there's quite a lot of evidence. And, um, you know, I would, I, would, uh, I would ask anybody who wants to delve deeper into the evidence for COVID's origins to check out a group on Twitter called Drastic, which is a group of um, independent researchers. It's a network, a loose network of independent researchers who were instrumental in basically um, bringing the evidence for COVID's origins to light. And um, one member of them, uh, Jamie Metzl, he's actually an insider because I think he worked uh, with the World Health Organization for quite a while. He's got a great blog uh, on his, uh, his jamiemetzl.com, I think, which um, basically summarizes all the evidence so far for um, the evidence for COVID's um, origins. And most of the evidence points towards it having emerged from the Wuhan lab. So, yeah. So this is, you know, this is obviously something that is quite troubling because conspiracy theories have often been considered the domain of the fringes. But what this situation shows us is that conspiracy theories can actually take hold in the mainstream. And that is actually very, very troubling because all the organizations that are supposed to protect us from misinformation. If you think about the media, the media is, you know, the fourth estate. It's supposed to be this kind of check on the other power centers. It's supposed to put a check on government. It's supposed to put a check on corporations. Um, You know, the New York Times considers itself a champion of the people against these big power centers. And it's always trying to find, you know, wrongdoing in in the government, wrongdoing in, in corporations. So, what happened was that this organization, this, this institution, which, is, which claims to protect us from conspiracy theories, itself fell victim to a conspiracy theory. And not just that, but also big tech. Big tech, you could call the big tech the fifth estate, because this is also like a major you know, new power, a major new institution, which has taken it upon itself to fight fake news, essentially to put a check on, on the media just as the media has put a check on government and on um, corporations. So big tech has put a check, has taken it upon itself to put a check on media. But big tech showed that it was essentially just a slave to media. And when when I say media, I'm really talking about liberal media here because the lab leak hypothesis was actually explored very early on by right-wing media, by the populist media, which is mainly right-wing, like the New York Post, Fox News, and most most people would not consider most people most educated people would not consider these to be credible sources of news and i would consider myself to be one of those people but they did to their credit 
explore this theory quite early on and they were quite fair-minded about it. Whereas the liberal media, the elite media, the New York Times is, the um, the Washington Post is, you know, all of these kinds of organizations, they they very quickly jumped on the uh, the racism bandwagon and just sort of decrying the lab leak hypothesis is just a far right conspiracy theory. So that there was a, you know, that was quite troubling that these highly respected organizations could fall so quickly into a conspiracy theory as a result of their own prejudices and biases. And um, that's basically um, what I meant by that was these organizations, we can't rely on them. We can't rely on them to protect us from conspiracy theories because they are themselves victims of conspiracy theories a lot of the time. Thanks. Um, so we've mentioned a couple of, in passing a few uh, concepts. Mithridatism, which is um, based on the idea of King Mithridates, who allegedly was so afraid of being poisoned that he consumed small amounts of poison every day, uh, gradually upping the dose so that he would develop immunity. And we also talked about the Wuzel effect, whereby if something is if something is cited again and again and again, nobody bothers to go back and check the original source to see whether that's, it just gains more and more credibility from having been shared. Um, but the original source could have been absolute bollocks because everyone is just, is just relying on the borrowed credibility it gets from having been shared by somebody authoritative. And one of the things that you do on Twitter, and I believe you, you are, going to write a book about this, have been commissioned to write a book about this, is um, introduce people in these uh, mega threads that you write to important uh, concepts in how humans, human behavior um, and human psychology, which people, or some of which people, with, with some of which people might not be familiar. Could you maybe uh, tell us about a couple more of those those concepts that you think, um, maybe choose one or two that you think are, are important or interesting that people aren't often familiar with? Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, well, I mean, there's, there's, I've got to choose from so many. Uh, I know. <laughs> so, uh, okay. So if we, to basically to remain on track and not to go off on a tangent, I think the idea of hyper novelty is quite an interesting one because it's one that I recently learned about. And this was from um, Brett Weinstein and um, Heather Haying, a husband and wife team of um, biologists who have a podcast called the Dark Horse Podcast. Yes, and Heather they, Heather Haying. Haying, yeah. Haying, yes. sorry. Yeah. I'm not very good with pronunciation sometimes, so um, forgive me for that. And um, basically, uh, the idea behind hypernovelty is it follows on from what I was just saying about how our problems are a result of us not having adapted to the digital age, um, in their estimation, this is a problem that might never be resolved because as we try to adapt to this, the current climate, the current sort of digital environment that we're living in, technology advances even further. So technology is advancing faster than we can adapt to it. And as a result of that, we're, we're constantly playing catch up. So by the time we have adapted to the kind of problems that we're facing, you know, our ancestors, like, you know, if, in the, let's say in the far future, let's say a hundred years into the future, the, the problems that we will have adapted to will no longer be problems because 
technology will have moved so fast by then and so far that the world will again, once again, be completely alien to us. And so we'll have to evolve again. <laughs> and because technology builds on technology, it's accelerating, whereas our, adapt- our evolutionary adaptation is linear. It, it's, um, it, it's moving at a constant rate. We're adapting to things at a constant rate. We can't speed up the rate at which we adapt to our environment because that occurs at the rate of natural selection. And so technology has got a hand, it, it's got an edge on us and it's, it's racing away from us. And so in, in the ideas of, of Weinstein and, and Haying, they do not, they're not sure that we can ever adapt to the situations that we're currently living through. So you could consider their idea as a kind of potential counterpoint to my own idea. I mean, I'm not sure if I completely agree with the idea of hypernovelty, but I think it's a very interesting one to consider because we do tend to sort of consider, we, we do tend to sort of overestimate the impact of the now on the future. We, we sort of tend to assume that things are gonna, always going to be the way that they currently are. You know, that we're always going to have the, the problems that we're currently facing. And the kind of the idea of hypernovelty kind of puts into perspective that the, the things that we think are problems now may not even register to us within 100 years or, or, or more, or even sometimes less, perhaps. It could even be in 10 years. In 10 years, we might have a whole new host of problems. And the, the current problems that we thought would be problems are not problems. So so that's one idea that I think is, is uh, one that's uh, worth exploring. And then I think you, you wanted another one, didn't you? So uh, Yes, please. Okay, so another idea that I think would be um, also quite interesting uh, that I think a lot of people should know about would be predictive coding, I think, is, is quite an interesting one because um, predictive coding is basically how the the mind forms uh, patterns, essentially, how it essentially sees patterns in things. And I think this is central to a lot of the problems that are facing human beings uh, today. Um, so the idea behind predictive coding is that we don't actually perceive, we don't completely just perceive the world. Um, perception is actually as much about conception as it is about perception. And what I mean by that is that we create what we see as much as we actually absorb what we see from the outside world. So so um, an example of this is um, if you are walking down a street on your way to work every day, um, the, the first time you walk through that street, you're going to notice pretty much everything about that street. You're going to, you're going to be, your, your mind's going to be very active and you're going to see a tree in a certain position and you're going to make a note of it. You're going to make a mental note of it. You're going to see the cars that are parked there. You're going to see the shops that are, that line the streets and you're going to build up a mental image of that street. But after say the hundredth or so of time of walking down that street, you're no longer going to be paying attention to that street. You're no longer going to really be thinking about that tree or that those cars or those shops um, because it's it's something that you've seen a million, well, not a million, but a hundred times before. And so it's no longer has any informational value to you. And so you're going to largely ignore it. And experiments have been conducted. And again, I'm not sure how well these will replicate, but these do suggest uh, that they, they have been conducted by various um, different organizations and they all seem to fall upon the same general idea, which is that um, 
people can become blind to what they are familiar with. So to go back to that example of walking down that street, you can walk down a street and if that tree one day is not there, a lot of people won't notice because because what's happened is that they actually don't see that tree. They see their mental image of the tree in that place. They superimpose their imagination onto reality. So they superimpose a mental image of the tree that they've made a mental note of. They put that onto the, the sort of landscape. They, they impose it onto the landscape. And so they will still see a tree there in, in their sort of peripheral vision, even though there's no tree there, because their mind has created a an image of reality that is now outdated. So this is this is the, the, the general way in which people view the world. We don't actually see the world as it actually is. We create mental images of the world and sometimes those mental images can deviate from what's actual, from what's real. So this is one reason why people, uh, you know, see patterns where no such patterns exist, because we, we essentially create these images in our own minds. We finish images. So if we see, um, if we see the outline of what looks to be a wolf in the undergrowth when we're hunter-gathering, uh, it makes evolutionary sense for us to finish off that image in our minds as a wolf rather than to leave it as an unfinished image. Because if we leave it as an unfinished image, like surrounded by shadow and, and you know, sort of half behind cover and hedges, then we're going to get pounced upon sooner or later and we're going to be eaten. Whereas if we see like the outline of an ear, of a, of a wolf's ear, and say like, let's say half, of, you know, it's, it's behind Uh, let's see, let's say we see it's uh, what looks like a tail. If we take those cues, those visual cues, and then we finish off the image, we connect the dots and finish off that image and form a wolf inside our minds, that's much, much better for us evolutionarily, because that means that we will avoid a threat, a potential threat. Now, if it turns out that 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 tail and that ear were actually just leaves and they weren't actually wolves, they weren't part of a wolf, it doesn't matter because we're going to be alive anyway. And, and so it's better to err on the side of um, seeing a predator in that undergrowth than to not see the predator in the undergrowth. And that's why we, 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 for, well, that's why we use predictive coding because it allows us to form images and to assess threats by um, minimizing time and energy. You know, it, it, we don't have to have the whole picture before we can make a decision. If we had to wait for the whole picture, if we had to wait for that wolf to emerge from behind that hedge in order to see it as a threat, we would probably be dead. And so that kind of thinking would not have really survived very long in, in our evolutionary history. So it's paranoia, which is at the heart of survival. And it is the paranoia um, which allowed us to survive in areas of low information, i.e. jungles at nighttime when everything's covered by shadow and undergrowth. If we could see a threat in that minimum low information environment, we would be, uh, we would survive. Now, that's a low information environment. The, the, the jungle, you know, with all the darkness, we can only make out a few shapes here and there. That's a low information environment. The environment in which we're currently living in is a high information environment. So this predictive coding is no longer an asset. It's now become a liability. And what I would use here is an analogy to somebody who's been, you know, if you've, you know, when you've, you're, you've been in bed for like, you know, a few hours and it's four o'clock in the morning and you need to use the bathroom. So you wake up and you switch on the light 
your eyes have adapted to the darkness. They've adapted to a low information environment. Now, suddenly when you switch on the light, you've got a high information environment. You're in a high information environment. And as a result of that, what's happened is that you're blind. You know, you can't see anything because you're, because everything's too bright. Um, because your eyes, you know, your, your pupils have dilated. Um, so they're used to, you know, they can see in the dark, but they can't see in the light because there's just too much light. And that's essentially what's happened to us now is that we are in this situation where for nearly 200,000 years, well, in fact, sorry, no, that's a mistake. For nearly a billion years, we have evolved for a low information environment. And now within the past couple of hundred years, you know, gradually we've we've just found ourselves in a in a high information environment and this problem has become particularly significant with the advent of the digital age in the past you know 20 or so years uh 20 30 years and so that's what, what what's happening right now is that the 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 mental architecture that we we have the way of seeing the world the way of connecting the dots that is no longer an asset. It's now become a liability. And, and it's the reason why we find patterns in everything because our overactive brains were trying to compensate for a low information environment. But now that we've got a high information environment, they've be- the brains have gone into overdrive and they're now seeing patterns in everything. You know, they're seeing wolves in every hedge. Mm. <laughs> and so, yes. and so the problem is, is that that's why we've got this, such an, you know, an, a proliferation of conspiracy theories and fake news and all this kind of stuff, because people are seeing patterns everywhere. And so that, you know, pe- people are losing track of what's actually a threat and what's not a threat. And this is what's causing a lot of anxiety and depression and, um, you know, putting everyone on edge and resulting in violence. All of these problems, they stem back to the fact that, again, like I said before, we've evolved, you know, we've created for ourselves a world we're not evolved for. And, and and so that's that's basically the idea. Yeah. Thank you. Good winter. Is there anything that you have uh, hope that we might talk about that we haven't had an opportunity to talk about? Oh, I mean, there's there's the loads of stuff. But I mean, if I was to uh, <laughs> you know if I, if I was to go by that, I think we'd probably end up talking for for years. So um, uh, I, I would probably have to just say no, just for the the sake of uh, you know brevity. Well, I have to have you um, back on. Um, yeah. At the very latest, once your book comes out, yeah, which I'm hugely looking forward to. Yeah, yeah, no problem. I was just going to say, um, well, before the book happens, the book is is probably going to be a long way off because I've been having a few problems with my uh, literary agent and um, publisher. So uh, I think bef- far before that, there's going to be a Substack. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, starting up a Substack, which will be quite rec- will be quite soon actually within the next couple of weeks. Um, so that's going to be where I, I'm going to be, uh, exploring a lot of the ideas that I've been tweeting about, um, you know, in, in more sort of longer form and more detail. Fantastic. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as soon as you have established yeah. the substack. No um, and meantime, what I've been asking, uh, what I'm now asking all my guests at the end of the podcast is, um, who else do you think that I should interview? Who else would be a good guest? Oh, um, that's a very interesting one. Um, well, there's a there's a guy actually who's who's on Twitter who's really really um, interesting. Um, his name's Aaron Z Lewis, and yeah. uh, he's a he's a writer um, for a, a small uh, outlet called Ribbon Farm, which is sort of uh, deals a lot with sort of how the uh, the digital age is affecting the human mind. Uh, he's a brilliant writer. He's got some extraordinary um, 
extraordinarily original ideas, and I think he's a he's a very sort of distinctive thinker. So I, I would be uh, I would love to to see a podcast with him. I can I can send you some more details of this guy, so you can actually um, you know check out his stuff on Twitter and stuff. But yeah, marvelous! I'll check him out. Thank you so much. No and um, thank you very much for joining us, Gore. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Likewise, thank you for hosting me. My pleasure. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.